All right, well, I'm gonna start out today. I got a couple stories for you. Are you shocked? <laughs> Jaw-dropping kind of stuff. But uh, a couple of different things that were running through my head this week. And the first one is this. In 1992, I had the opportunity um, to go to um, um, Russia and to do sort of a, a summer missions trip kind of thing. And, and during that summer, I had an opportunity uh, to meet a guy from the former Soviet uh, Republic of Kazakhstan, which is a Muslim country. And, and it comes with all the trimmings of a Muslim country kind of thing, right? And this was an exchange program. He and people from all over the former Soviet Union got together with a bunch of us from the US and we did sort of a cultural exchange kind of thing. Uh, that was sort of what was happening on the surface. We lived together, hung out together for the summer, that kind of stuff. But surely, I mean, it was our intention uh, as we shared about um, the religious uh, sort of background and heritage of America. We had an opportunity to share the gospel with them to share about Jesus and we were praying and, we did worship services, we did all kinds of stuff uh, together without, you know, praying and hoping to have an opportunity to, to lead some of the uh, students that are Christ. It was an amazing opportunity, uh, just a very memorable time. But there's one person uh, in my mind that really stands out, this, this guy from the former, uh, you know, from Kazakhstan, the former Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan. Um, he came in, and it was a highly unusual, again, him coming from a Muslim background, came in and he came up to me and a couple others one of the first nights we were there he's like he's like yeah i know why we're here we're getting the whole cultural exchange he said, but he said between you and me I'm, i came to summer for one reason i want to find out who jesus christ really is and i was like right <laughs> like we're like what that was not what i was expecting to come out of his mouth and so uh, we did bible studies with them and we got a chance to share with them and all this kind of stuff i mean it was amazing and as you would expect god was already working so uh before the summer was over, he had opened up his heart and his life to Jesus. And it was like the lights came on for the first time. You could just see this guy. I mean, his life was transformed. He was exuding Jesus. You could see it in him. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you can see it on people's faces, there's joy, there's peace. He's, he's discovering what it looks like to follow and to know and to do life with Jesus. Super cool. Um, the summer thing ended. He is on a spiritual high. He goes back home. I think that went over back home in Kazakhstan. Right? It was it was rough. I, I heard from him a couple months later. He was he was one that was actually uh, a non-traditional student, so he's a little bit older. He, he uh, like I said, I heard from him a couple months later. He went home. His wife took the kids and left him. His his dad uh, treats him as though he's dead. I mean, will has will have nothing to do with him. He lost his job, and even had the police on numerous occasions would call him in to question him, primarily because they had heard that he's a Christ follower. And uh, I mean, it's I mean, just what I mean. We're hearing this as Americans. We're like, oh my gosh! I mean, I can't even. I don't even have a box for that, right? Um, fast forward about a year or so. Uh, there's a, a student Christian organization that we're a part of uh, called InterVarsity. You guys heard of InterVarsity before? They have every few years. They have a, they call it a missions conference. It's kind of a a, a conference for InterVarsity people. They have it in Urbana, Illinois. So kind of in our backyard here, not too far from here. And they have this huge missions conference. Tens of thousands of students uh, come and are a part of this. And uh, like I said, maybe a year or two after I was there, uh, this friend of mine from Kazakhstan got up and he shared his testimony um, with these tens of thousands of students. And as he's doing it, I mean, his face, it's almost like his face was glowing. He's talking about how amazing it is to follow Jesus, how it was the best decision he ever made. He went on and talked about the cost and then he challenged these students and said, man, I mean, first of all, if you have not yet made that commitment, follow Jesus, hold nothing back. Like, It'll be the best thing you ever do, and then challenge them to, to take the gospel and to share it uh, with other people that don't yet know. 
academic. The whole thing sort of rocked my world. It's imprinted on my mind because I, I was thinking about it, thinking, how could somebody who has lost so much be so filled with peace and joy and contentment for Jesus, through Jesus, when so many of us that have so much can't find contentment or peace or joy to save our lives? Why is that? Story number two. Um, I uh, ran across, I heard it a long time ago, but it just almost stuck with me as well. A guy by the name of Horatio Spafford, I think that's how you say his name. Business guy who lived in Chicago in the 1800s. He was a wealthy lawyer who lost all of his wealth pretty much during the Chicago fire of 1871. He is heavily invested on real estate along the lake shore. He put millions and millions of dollars into this. And when the Chicago fire came, it all went up overnight. He was left with virtually nothing. That same year, his, his only son died um, from some disease or something. Uh, and I mean, if you can just imagine just the pain and the tragedy and the, uh, of having to grieve all of that all at the same time. And so uh, they decided as a family they were going to take a trip. Um, and so he, his wife, and his three daughters bought tickets on a ship and was going to uh, go back to Europe and spend um, some significant time there trying to heal, heal up, and, and just rest and try to come out the other side of this, although he got, he got um, some business came up and he had to stay, um, and so he said his wife and his three daughters on the ship uh, with the intention that he would come a few weeks later and uh, we would spend some time together. Well, uh, a huge storm comes up as they are making the crossing, uh, and another ship ends up actually running into them and they sink in something like 12 minutes or something like that. The entire ship goes down. His wife is spared, but all three daughters die. All three. His wife sends a cable when she gets to the other side. She said, you know, a huge shipwreck. I alone was spared. The other, the girls are gone. And I mean, you can just imagine, I mean, the heartbreak of a dad who's lost virtually everything. And so he catches the very next um, ship um, to go over and join her. And as they came near the place where his daughters had died, the, the skipper of the ship points out the place where the ship had gone down. And it was there on the deck of the ship that he wrote the words to this well-known hymn that we sang a variation of last week, right, where he says this, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever was my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I hear stuff like that, I think, man, how is that possible? In the midst of unbelievable grief, he is able to cling to God, is somehow filled with peace. I mean, in the midst of that, I'm sure there's terrible grief. There was horrible loss. There was a grieving process and all that. But something in him was still complete. Something in him was still filled with that peace and that joy despite circumstances. I, I hear stories like those and I think that, that is a level of spiritual toughness that I'm not sure we know that much about. Here's a sermon that says today. How we respond to life's trials determines to a large extent how happy, how peaceful, how joy-filled, and how content we will be. Let me say it one more time just to make sure we got it. How you and I respond to the trials that come into our lives determines to a large extent how happy, how peaceful, and how content our lives will be. Well, we are on week number two of a series that we're doing here at Ignite called Greener, 
finding contentment and joy in everyday life. And last week we talked, we kind of kicked off this series by talking about uh, the fact that, that contentment and joy is not found from the externals, right? It's not, it's not found in all the things that we think will bring us pleasure, right? Success and money and all that. We learned some lessons from a guy by the name of King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we kind of talked about that and said, you know what? His conclusion, one of the, the wisest men that ever lived, right? Steps, steps up and says, I, I did a huge research project. Project. And you know what my conclusion was? All that stuff out there, everything under the sun, remember that? Everything under the sun, everything in the here and now, it's empty. It doesn't fill me. It doesn't bring lasting peace and contentment and joy the way it promises to. And his conclusion is that life is found in the sun, right? Life is found in Christ, in God alone. That he is the source of joy. He is the source of contentment. So contentment in the life you and I are meant to experience, the one that we long for begins, we said, with the relationship with Jesus. It begins as we open up our hearts and lives to him. Well, today I want to take it a step further, and I want to talk about hardship as an opportunity for growth. This is not the message you want to hear, but perhaps the message that we need to hear. Because if you and I can't learn how to deal with disappointments, if we can't learn how to deal and how to approach hardships, then we will likely always struggle with discontentment. We'll be consumed by the why questions of life. Of why is this happening to me? Why does the bad stuff happen to me? Why am I struggling when they're not? It'll be, we'll, we'll keep our eyes focused on one another and why my lot is so bad and their lot is so much easier than me. Be consumed with that and we will, if we are consumed with that, we'll likely uh, never find the joy and the fullness and the contentment that you and I want for. Remember when Tina and I were uh, were first dating and in college and then uh, engaged and in our first years of marriage? Uh, I can remember we struggled a little bit. Any any other uh, people when they were uh, newlyweds or in that era ever struggle with any with each other at all? It never happens to you guys, right? <laughs> it's probably just me. But anyway, I mean, like we, Tina and I uh, complement each other in a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways that our hearts are the same and our, our passions are the same. And yet we are wired up very differently, right? I am a very strong thinker. She's about as strong as you can get on the feeler side of things, right? I'm, I, I kind of approach life oftentimes as a thinker and with, with truth, like, of like, just like, well, this is what's true. This is what's right. I kind of think through it, the wheels, the cogs turn in my head, and that's it. Tina is like one of the most compassionate and gracious people you'll ever meet. And so there were times when those when those kinds of opposites, right, would, would butt heads with each other. And we, we had to work hard on our, on our relationship. We had to fight for our relationship, so to speak. And, uh, and there were times we had other friends that were in similar life stages. They were getting married. They were dating. They were whatever. And they were more like in the goo-goo. Gaga phase, right? They were like, everything's wonderful, amazing, like all this kind of stuff. Like, oh my goodness, they're perfect. I've met the perfect man, I've met the perfect woman. We'll never clash. We'll always, you know, it'll be rainbows, unicorns, and all that stuff, whatever. And I mean, like, you know what I mean, though, right? Like, and, and it was so much to, 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 to the point where we kind of stepped back at, at some different times and said, are we, are we like screwed up or something? I mean, like, are, is there something wrong with us? Why is this so hard for us? And it's seemingly so easy for them. We had really good friends that got married at almost the exact same time as us, right? I mean, very similar seasons. And uh, his, I can remember Tina saying on different occasions, what's up with us? Like, they're all happy and they're all 
like everything's going great, and it's so hard for us. Well, I have to say, so can I put a pin in that? Or I don't know what you said, but like, hit the pause button there. Step back. Fast forward only a few years. Tina and I are the only one of our friends that are still married. We within the first five years. I share that not because we're great, but I mean, I share that because you know what the reality is? The reality is all of us face hardship. Sometimes we think when we're looking at the outside and we're looking in at others, we're looking at them and we're going, why can't I be more like, why can't I be more like Joel and Tammy? They got it all together, right? I love embarrassing them. <laughs> she loves the spotlight. But, you know, why, can't we be more, why can't we be more like that? I mean, seemingly they got it all together, right? If we could just the reality, right, and, and the reality even of what Jesus himself says. So that's not true. That's not true. John 16, I believe it is. Okay, next slide. Yeah, this is Jesus' um, summary of this. He says, you know what? In this world, you, what does that say? Really? Does it say maybe? You might? Some people do? Is that what it says? He says, in this sin-filled world, the reality is, he says, he says you will have trouble. You'll have trouble. All of us do, right? I mean, that kind of trouble comes to us all. There will be storms in every man's life, in every woman's life, in every kid's life. There will be, uh, they will be different. They may not all look the same, smell the same, be the same, but you and I will experience troubles. We will have trials. We will experience hardship. The only question is how will you face it? How will you respond? I remember the week after 9-11 using this illustration uh, with our church in Wisconsin, but, but I brought the, uh, an egg and a potato, and we boiled them, right, in, in, in front of the church. We said, it's crazy, but you, you take two things like this, and you put them in boiling water, you, you, you kind of, uh, can't think of the word, but you, whatever, you put them in the fire, right, you, you uh, expose them, so that's what I'm looking to to harshness and, and, and pain and boiling water and scalding water, and they have two very different responses, right? Potatoes get softer and softer and softer, and eggs get, right? I think the same is true of people. All of us experience trials. The only question is how will you and I respond? Well, today we are going to be learning some lessons about this from James chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you open them up? If you've got your uh, phones and you don't have a Bible, you can click on and, and open up the Ignite Church app and uh, follow along with the notes there. And there's the scriptures and stuff in there as well. You can take those with you as you go today and uh, think about us more. But James chapter 1, uh, we're going to start with verse 1. We're going to read through uh, a few verses and then I'm going to kind of talk about it. Starts out this way. James chapter 1, starting verse 1, says, James, this is how a lot of these letters start. James is the author, and so he's introducing himself. saying, James is the brother of Jesus, by the way. Can I just pause again and just, I, I like to say this sometimes, but this is always jaw-dropping to me. James is the brother of Jesus. He ends up becoming a believer. He believes in the resurrection. He believes even in the godhood of Jesus. What would it take for you to convince your brother that you were the Messiah? <laughs> I think it's some of the strongest evidence there is that Jesus must have been the real deal. His own brother even believed in him, right? I mean, this is crazy. He wrote one of the books of the Bible. James, the brother of Jesus, this is what he says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
this is who he's running into, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Again, let me pause and just give you a little bit of background information here. This letter is written to Christians. It says, scattered among the nations. Now, any guesses of why the believers would have been scattered in the mid-first century? Why do you think that might be? Persecution. Persecution, right? Persecution. In fact, you can read about it in Acts chapter 7 and 8. It begins with the stoning of a guy by the name of Stephen, right? Who was a leader in the church. It's an amazing story, by the way. We're going to talk about somebody that, that uh, stands in the midst of adversity. He gets stoned. As he's being stoned, he's forgiving the people that are stoning him. His face, they say, sh kind of shone like the glory of God. He looks up and sees Jesus and hears Jesus speaking to him in the midst of Amazing story. But as, as the uh, religious leaders of this day are hearing these Christians, these Christ followers, going out and sharing with people about Jesus, they get ticked. And so they decide, we're going to go after him. The stoning of Stephen is the first place. They kill him. Stoning is literally what you think it is. It's taking stones and throwing them at somebody until they die. So he, he dies for this. At that point, it goes ballistic, right? I mean, just... just they, they think that was great. We should do it again. The religious leaders think it's so they start arresting and chasing after, and uh, I mean, killing and beating and anything they can do to try and extinct, extinguish these Christ followers from speaking about Jesus. And yet, what happens? By the way, everywhere they go, what do they talk about? What do you think they talk about? Okay, you guys. Just okay. You're gonna have to leave. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Like, what? Well, Engage with me here, right? Like, what do you think? What do you think? Everywhere these Christ followers go, what are they talking about? If we're in church, right? What do you think they're talking about? Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And they're warned, they're arrested, they're beaten, they're flogged. They say, don't speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they go out and they're like, try and stop me, right? <laughs> try and stop me. And they go out, so everywhere they go, churches are springing up, people are coming to know Christ, all this kind of stuff. But persecution is running rampant. And the, the believers flee from Jerusalem because it's, it's a bad place to be and be a Christian. Everywhere they go, they're spreading the name of Jesus. So the Christians are distributed amongst the nations. I'll tell you what, though, man, you start hearing, like I said, you start hearing these stories of these Christ followers that are, that are warned and that are being arrested and chased after and flogged. They're seeing others being killed all for being Christ followers, and yet you can't shut them up. There's a toughness there, isn't there? Like, there's a toughness that they're like, I don't know that we know much about these days. Like, how in the world can people stand and have that kind of spiritual strength? So this is the circumstances they're going. These are the people that James is writing to. You go back, James. 1-1, one, one, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, is both tribes scattered among the nations because of the persecution. It says, greetings. And he says this, you who are undergoing trials, you who are being tested, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Trials, James says, trials produce perseverance. The Greek word for perseverance literally has four different definitions. Let me just listen for you. Active steadfastness. Maybe not helpful. Staying power. Man, I love that one. Staying power. Can I just, uh, I'm not trying to pick anything, but man, do you think we've used more staying power in our marriages these days? 
when adversity comes, when hard things happen, the sense that I'm staying, I'm going to fight for this marriage no matter what comes. You think we could use more of that? The divorce rate these days is what? Right around 50% right there. How different our marriages and our lives look if we had that perseverance, staying power. Uh, the third one is constancy, that uh, continually being constant over and over. The fourth one is determination under adversity. Now, this is just crazy because when you and I experience hardship, what is our natural inclination? To give up? What else? Complain? Complain? Yeah. What else? What's that? Run. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Our natural inclination is to hide, to run, to blame, right? To all this kind of stuff. That's what we do. But here God says, you know what? If you and I would stand in the midst of it, if we would wait, if we would even lean into trials, he will use it to teach you and to strengthen you and to fill your life in ways that you and I can't imagine. He wants to use trials to make you tough. God uses trials to make you tough. Can I ask you a question? How tough are you, spiritually speaking? How tough are you? Do you have a faith? Do you have a confidence and a connection with God that's strong and tough and enduring? A faith that can weather whatever storm may come your way. Let me just push on this a little bit because uh, my observation is that we as the American church and we as American churchgoers are not that tough at all. And maybe this isn't you, but it just seems like in our American version of following Jesus is just so weak. I mean, the church, in the church that Jesus started, people were willing to follow him and to live for him, even die for him, regardless of the cost. Christians were set on fire in those days. They were sawed in two, they were whipped, they were beaten, and yet they could not be stopped. You couldn't stop them. It was incredible. Everywhere they went, they shared the name of Jesus. Everywhere they went, they served the poor, they welcomed the outsider, they shared about this Savior that had so transformed their life. They were unstoppable. It was crazy. It was a movement that swept the globe. Can I just say, I think maybe God wants to toughen you up a little bit. I think he wants to toughen me up a little bit. I think the American church is maybe the spiritual equivalent of a 60-pound weakling. If we can't stand up to temptation or peer pressure, if we can't manage to make time in our schedules to prioritize coming to church or to prioritize you know, reading the Bible or praying or connecting with God or whatever, then could it be that God's saying today, maybe we need to toughen up a little bit. Maybe he's trying to toughen you up a little bit. If we don't have the internal fortitude to be able to withstand some comments from culture or on Facebook without sort of flying off the handle, then could it be that God wants to toughen you up a little bit? He wants to strengthen you and teach you about perseverance. Could it be if your natural temptation or, or tendency when hard things come your way is to run away or to drink or to self-medicate or to blame others? As a way to deal with stress and pain in your life, could it be that maybe God's saying, I want to toughen you up a little bit. I want to teach you and strengthen you so that you are able to stand when the hard things come, so that you can stand under tremendous pressure. Can I suggest to you that maybe we as American Christians, for the most part, need to get tougher. If you're here this morning and you're a Christ follower, then I want you to hear this because God is working in your life to try and bring that about. God is working to bring about perseverance in your life, 
to strengthen you and make you tough so that you can stand. And not only stand, but as we'll see a little bit later, thrive, even in the face of trials. Now my question is, how do you think God's going to do that? Do you think God strengthens us and teaches us to stand by bringing rainbow and unicorn again? Is that, is that how he's going to do it? When, you, uh, when you're training for a marathon, do you train by sitting on the couch? <laughs> yeah. That doesn't usually work for us, though. Does it? Yeah, it doesn't really work. Yeah. <laughs> is that how you train? Or how do you train? You push, you work, right? I mean, the same thing is true for your God says, you know what? God is working to strengthen your faith. And you know how he's going to do it? He's going to use trials. He's going to use pain. He's going to use hardship if you and me as a way to teach us to walk with him, to grow closer to him, as a way to teach us that we can stand with him. God is at work. So that really, when really hard things come, he's preparing you so that you and I can thrive. Consider it pure joy, he says, when you face trials. Why? Because trials make you tough. They produce perseverance. They enable you to, to stay faithful and to remain calm under pressure. And God says, as you allow him to, to use those things, as he, you allow him to teach you perseverance, perseverance, he says, will make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Not lacking anything. How many people would say, man, I think I'd like a little bit more of that in my life. I would like to have that kind of fullness where I feel like I am complete, I am full, like I lack nothing. It's the definition of of peace, isn't it? Lacking nothing. Perseverance makes you mature and complete. If you want your life to be full and meaningful and fulfilling and lacking nothing, then he says that you and I have got to learn to persevere. We've got to learn to become tough in the face of trials and disappointments and hardships. I'm not talking about being hard-hearted, right? That's a different kind of thing. Sometimes... Sometimes that's we, we become more like the A, right? That I talked about. Sometimes we toughen up on the inside and our hearts get hard. That's not that's not the picture that God's talking about, right? Because according to God, the most important things in life are about loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, and learning to love others as He loves us. He says that's the good stuff. So we're not talking about a heart of hardness of heart. We're talking about being soft-hearted, but having a faith that endures and can stand. At the cost. One of my favorite books, I'm going to get myself in trouble. Oh, I already get in trouble because I'm talking too much. But uh, one of my favorite books, I have to say, is a book called The Endurance. It's about Sir Ernest Shackleton. If you've never heard about it, you should go and Google it. Amazing story. Uh, he's a, uh, he was one of the last um, Antarctic explorers who wanted to cross uh, Antarctic, Antarctica and go to the pole. His ship got stuck in the ice flows, got crushed and swallowed up. He and his crew lived on the ice for more than a year. The name of the book is Endurance, and it was called that for a reason, right? Also the name of the ship, the Endurance. Amazing book. Anyway, crazy cool story. But again, God is working in us, trying to teach us to be tough, to persevere, that we can stand even when trials and hardships come, that we can stand and thrive in the midst of this. Let's jump ahead to verse 12. Oh, this is fascinating. Uh, verse 12, this is the way he, he summarizes this. Look at the word he uses. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. 
because when they have stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed, he says. Is that, is that what you'd say? Is that what you'd naturally think of? Man, look, when you think of trials, what word kind of goes along with it in your head? You are blessed if you learn to persevere. Blessed literally means you will be happy. If I can use uh, today's vernacular, right? Happiness, or you will be happy. You will be filled. Life will be good <coughs> to the one who learns to persevere under trials. Trials are coming to every one of us. The only question is how you and I will respond. That will determine if we will be happy, if we will experience blessing, or if we'll run away and try to avoid it. That's enough. We've got some amazing uh, friends back in Wisconsin. Uh, I worked with her, but I mean, these, this, uh, this couple, they just exude your way. They're just the kind of people you like being around. They love people well. They're passionate. Yeah, this is, this is them. They're passionate Jesus followers and Jesus lovers. Uh, I worked with her at, uh, at one of the district uh, church planting gigs that I worked at up there, and uh, it was just fun. Uh, she's the perfect person to have on team. She's a hard worker. She's incredibly confident. She's a good leader. She's just, she's kind of a guest person, if you know what I mean. Not like to ideas, but just like if you need something done, she'd be like, I'll do it. And she'd love to do like anything that would help move the mission forward. It's just the kind of person that just like to hear that, right? They're, they're fun, they're great, good, high character, all that kind of stuff. And yet I have to say, uh, they have had, for whatever reason, I have no idea why, but they have been in one job situation after another, after another, after another, after another, that they've been let go. And it's not because of character stuff, it's not because of something they screwed up or interpersonal or whatever. It was, it was always those painful downsizing kind of things. In fact, uh, she got let go from the place that we were at, and I mean, our boss like wept. Like it said, look, I, I feel like we're ripping out the heart of our organization. I, I mean, like didn't want to do it, but they couldn't afford to have her on stuff. It was, it's one of those things where you just, it's, it's happened chronically to them over the last number of years. They could go into another position, which is great, and they're serving, and I mean, they love them there, whatever else, and, the organization, something happens, and they have to have to let them go. And this happened to both of them uh, to the point where it's really impacted them financially. I mean, it's it's been a huge drain. It's one of those things that's agonizing as a friend, right? You watch it like, God, I don't get it. I don't understand this. But you know what? If you were to sit down with them, you know what you'd see from them most days? You wouldn't hear complaining. You wouldn't hear, you probably wouldn't hear much about it. You know what you would hear, what you would see? would hear Jesus. You would hear, I mean, you'd see how much they love each other, how much they love God, how much they love you, right? that kind of thing. Because, because she and they have learned the secret of being content. Right? They have learned how to be steadfast, how to stand, how to trust and trust themselves to God in the midst of hard things. And as a result, they are blessed. God has used perseverance to grow them to the point that they lack nothing. They're tough. They're strong. How about you? Let's talk and take a minute. I'm going to kind of transition to some application. Let's take a minute and talk about, so how do we do this? How do we learn perseverance in the midst of trials so that we can grow and be strong and steadfast and experience life in fullness. I'm going to hit three. I'll try to do so fairly quickly. Um, 
the first one is this, is you pivot your focus, right? You know, I'm gonna be P words because I'm a pastor and have to make them all a little or something. But the passage in James, is, it starts out a little bit avant-garde, right? It's supposed to be a bit shocking. When he starts out, it says, consider it pure joy when you face hardship, when you face trials. It's meant to be sort of a <coughs> drop your jaw sort of line, right? It's meant to be a little bit shocking. It's meant to be that way. But he, so he says, consider it pure joy, which is, it means think, remember that God is doing something in these trials. He's doing something in you. He is doing a good work in you because you know that he's going to make you tough and strong and complete, as you say, teachable by him. Therefore, he says, consider it pure joy. What James is talking about is sort of a shift. It's a pivoting of your focus from the trial itself, pivoting the question, what is God going to do with me right now? What is he trying? What is the good work he's trying to do? What's he saying to me? How is he transforming me? How is he completing his work? We were in Wisconsin. We were by we went up there started a church. We were there for 14 years. We were probably about five years in. And we were pouring ourselves out. We were young. We started in our young 20s. And so we, we uh, poured ourselves out there. We built friends there. We served there. We told people about Jesus. I decided to become the best of the people. We served in the community, at the schools. We did everything we could possibly do. We worked about a gazillion hours a week. That's a real burn. But, uh, <laughs> but we did all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and we were well-loved, things were going, I mean, okay, they were going, like, awesome, like, it wasn't totally up into the right, but it was growing, and we were moving forward. And I remember this, this era, I know for a lot of years, where, uh, for whatever reason, a couple of people got super disgruntled, and they didn't like what you were doing, or didn't like something about us, or whatever. And uh, rather than coming to us and addressing it, they started whispering, and they started talking talking to people. Suddenly more and more people were a little, they were a little upset, they were a little mad, they were like, whatever. Suddenly uh, they weren't getting as much traction as they thought they, they should get, and so they started telling and sort of uh, accusing of bigger and bigger and bigger things, right? I mean, it was suddenly there's name calling going on, suddenly there's all kinds of harsh things. We don't even hear about it until like, the whole thing is sort of uh, full-fledged thing. And by the way, it's crazy, but this is sort of a normal thing for pastors. Isn't that weird? And there's all kinds of attacks and name-calling. Uh, so, suddenly, people start getting swayed by it and swept away by it. And, uh, I mean, good friends of ours, people that we invested in, people that we stayed up all night with when their kids were in the hospital. And, like, you know, those kind of things. People we've prayed for and been over to their house dozens and dozens and dozens of times. There's all this hard stuff going on. People are leaving the church and refusing to talk to us. Like, we're axe murderers or something, right? I mean, it's like weird kind of stuff. Like, what is going on? And uh, it was, at that point, so easy just to feel the weight of it on our shoulders and to feel like, oh, man, we're, how are we ever going to survive this? It was, it went on, like I said, it went on for a year. If you've never experienced something like this, it's hard to imagine. But I mean, like, uh, to stand up and preach in front of people when, when you feel like they're going to go home and break, cut you apart is incredibly vulnerable. It's incredibly hard to keep uh, building relationships, keep moving forward, keep pouring yourself out. It's just a hard and hurtful, one of the most hurtful years of my life. And uh, uh, even one of the guys we started the church with got swayed in business, never trusted me again. And uh, it was really painful. I remember I uh, had a mentor sit down with me. He listened to me and he cared for me. He heard me complain, right, grumble about how bad it was. They all hated me. And he cared for me, prayed for me, did all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I'll never forget. And he starts, he starts asking questions. 
questions like this. What do you think God's trying to do in the midst of this? How teachable are you by God right now? What do you think God's plan is? How does he use suffering in people's lives? A few small questions with a little body and a little it changed, it sounds crazy, but it changed everything for me. It changed me from, oh man, it's so hard and painful, all those people are doing, why are they being mean to me, why is this happening to me, to all of a sudden it's like, what if God has a purpose, even in pain? What if God it really is trying to use hardship and trials to do something in me, to bring about greater levels of Christ-likeness in me? What if he's trying to make me more like the man I'm supposed to be? What if God really is using pain and hardship in trials for his purposes. Like I said, it sounds, it sounds trite or small. It's actually a huge shift. It's a huge difference. Oh, it has some great stuff on it, but I think I'll, I'll leave that there. Um, but I think that's really the first step that happens in there is when we are going through hardship and trial, the first thing is to pivot your focus a little bit from, oh, man, poor me, the weight is terrible. I'm not saying that to grieve appropriately. Because right? there's a place for that. You can own it and be honest. You can work through that. But there's a there's a time when it's time to shift our focus into what what is God trying to do? Because when we shift our focus, suddenly we can become teachable. We can learn how to stand. We can learn toughness and let perseverance do its work. And the second thing I'll just mention is to uh, second kind of step in this how to grow in the midst of trial is praise, right? Praise, even in the midst of trials. Uh, man, stories and stuff. I don't want to, but uh, there's a, I'll, I'll shortcut it, but there's a, a great story by Chuck Smith who talks about going visiting a missionary friend, going through a horribly stressful season and era in his life. He went to visit him, went to his house. His wife said, he's not here, he's down in the office, and this is overseas uh, someplace. He, uh, made the walk to the office, is coming down this back alleyway to this little tiny hut with, a, with just a mat in the middle. As he approaches, he can hear singing right from the guy as he's worshiping. And uh, so he also said, man, I just sat there and I eavesdropped on this guy's private worship time. He had a Bible on one side, he had a journal, and he had a songbook on the other. And he would read something from the Bible, he would pray even out loud, and he would just worship. And it was, a, it was an incredibly hard season, but Sweet Nelson, man, this guy came back. He was completely transformed. The circumstances didn't change, but through praise, through worship, all of a sudden his eyes get lifted to God. He gets lifted off of our problems to the Savior, right? to the only one that can really do something about it. Suddenly God gets magnified. We see him much bigger than we saw him before in our problems that seem so much more Manageable. You know what? I think it's one of the reasons God tells us to gather together week after week, day after day, to worship. Because when we worship and when we praise, all of us, this happens to me all the time, all of a sudden the weight gets lifted off my shoulders, my eyes get raised, and I remember there is a God who is on the throne. He's big enough to handle any problem, and he can handle the stuff happening in my life and in yours. In fact, he's the only one most of the time that can handle the stuff going on in your life and in mine. Sometimes we delude ourselves into thinking that I can, you know, I can, I can control this, I can whatever. But when we worship, we're reminded there, there is one that's on the throne. He's got this kind of stuff. 
All right, third thing I'll just hit real quick is just pray through the trials. Man, I love the way Philippians uh, says it. Paul says it in Philippians uh, 4, 6 through 7. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. You can go to the next slide if you have it there. Nope. 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 Okay, well, we should, but we don't. So just listen. <laughs> it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, he says, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you and I are going through a hard time, a hard season, I would tattoo this on the inside of your eyelids, right, this verse. I would write it out and put, stick it on your wall and put it on your fridge. And there's something powerful that when we are weighed down by the stresses and the pressures of life, I love this passage, because the whole thing is, he says, Present your request to God. Present really means dump them. Like take the load and drop it before God. Take the pressure and the stress and the pain and the confusion. Drop it before God. Pour your heart out to God. What is going on? I don't understand. I'm, you know, I'm broken and I'm hurting and this is going on and all this kind of stuff. And then he trust it to him. Just drop it before he says, what do you do? Peace of God. Which is mind-boggling. We don't even understand. We guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I can't tell you how many times this has been true in my life, and I know it's been true in so many years. The problem is that so often we wait until the pain level is like off the charts before we do this. What if we could learn to do this early on in the process? They will drop the pain and the hurt and the trials and all the junk is even and just trust ourselves to God. Open ourselves up. I shared last week about this 30 year long study uh, done by Stanford and Harvard and Penn and Berkeley about what makes people content and happy and all that stuff over the long haul. So there's nine keys uh, they found that are statistically linked to contentment and joy and happiness in our lives. So I guess one of them is one of them is those who learn to use trials as an opportunity to grow experience statistically way higher levels of joy and contentment in their lives. It's true statistically. It's exactly what the Bible says, right? It's, it's true in our lives. It's true experientially. I don't know what things you might be struggling with being not sure where you're at or how God may be speaking to you. But friends, I think of this idea, you know, if you and I want to experience a life of contentment, of lasting joy, no matter what's going on externally, then we're going to, it's going to require us to learn to deal with disappointment and trials and hardships and respond in ways that lead to life. Because, Jesus, as Jesus says, in this world, you and I will have trouble. The only question is, how will you and I respond when it comes? You can try to blame somebody. You can try to run away. You can try to avoid it or hide it. That never works. Instead, God says to develop toughness, to develop perseverance in our life so that we can become mature blessed and lack of it. We can experience that when we're in the pits of hard times, right? Uh, lift our focus from the problems onto God. What's he trying to do in us? We can experience it through praying, through dropping these loads and trusting ourselves to him and living his peace. We can experience it through praising God through our trials. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you that uh, even though you tell us that in this world we will have trouble, 
Thanks, Gary. You also remind us that you are overcoming. We're going to pray for my friends here today, those especially that are some undoubtedly that are struggling and wrestling with experiencing loss and pain and hardship. Lord, I pray that you would just surround them as with your presence. I pray that they could know your presence with them, they could know your arm around them. Wrestle in the short term, God, that you can uh, learn 